You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Barakat Trust, with the support of the Al-Tajir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Hello, everyone. This is Sefer Rashidi from the Barakat Trust. I'm very happy to be here today with Abdurrahman and Turki Gazaz, who are going to talk to us about a very interesting project called Saudi Modern. They're the co-founders of Brick Lab, and they're going to tell us all about what they do. Welcome, Abdurrahman, and welcome, Turki. Hi, Seif. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, Abdurrahman, could you tell us a bit about yourselves and about Brick Lab and about the kind of projects that you do? At Brick Lab, we started working on various research projects back in 2015. At that point, we decided to start Brick Lab as a vehicle that could look at architecture as a malleable subject matter. So we really at BrickLab, we work on architecture projects in, in the built environment, but also research the infrastructure of our cities, as well as researching things that are between material uh, textures. So we produce artworks sometimes, produce, we publish books at others, and we really try to create a critical outlook on whatever project we're given as a point of departure for our research. Okay, so Brick Lab is the research part of what you do, but you also use it to inform your architectural design? Yes, I think through Brick Lab, we have come up with different initiatives over time. Um, one, one of them is what we're going to be talking about today is, is Saudi Modern. It stems from our research on, on Jeddah. Uh, so I think that's something that can really maybe let the audience know how we function. It's, it's, we look at architecture from very different uh, aspects uh, and at different scales. And what made you adopt this approach? I think it's our general interests. Um, go, being able to study uh, in different parts of the world really gave us a different outlook on our own city. So we started investigating our own city as a, as a kind of way to understand how we can approach our profession within a given context. We're looking at Jeddah because that's where we are, but Again, as I, as I spoke about before, when we're given a project, we always look at where, where that project is situated and try to investigate and question what, what a built form can give back to this urban landscape, whether it be it in Jeddah, Riyadh, we've worked in Venice and London. So it's always kind of looks at where the project is situated. And that really enriches, let's say, our knowledge about the world around us. And can you give us an example of the kind of research that Brick Lab might do, for example? Okay. So, I mean, I think being, uh, our research has really been honed down into maybe two different approaches. One is more about the uh, urban research and understanding the environment environment. And on the other hand, research into uh, material development. So uh, on one hand, uh, what we really try to, as Abdurrahman said, we investigate the urban histories, the sort of the, the architecture and the politics behind the built environment with each given project. Uh, and that usually translates into a, a better understanding of the material economy of that project and trying to develop uh, a specific response for this specific uh, place. Okay. Well... Can you now tell me a bit about your Saudi modern project, what it is and how it came about? I mean, as we, we just started, we were just uh, talking about earlier, it, it started off from this desire to research and better understand our, our built environment. And for, with uh, Saudi modern, really the first 
uh, initial step was a general inquiry into the history of our urban fabric. And that really, in the absence of concise, reliable uh, resources that explain the modern development of uh, Jeddah, we had to literally get in the car every weekend and drive around to document different areas, speak with some of the residents and try to backtrack and find uh, different historical anecdotes about each neighborhood. And over the course of three years, we, re- we, we, uh, we had compiled a comprehensive archive of these different areas and that developed into an essay. And then after the essay, we just thought that the essay is really uh, limited to a, a small audience, small academic audience. And we, so what we thought about is how do we expand that so it can reach, so it can reach the wider residents of Jeddah, because this is something that is really, uh, it's a fascinating history that's often overlooked in favor of, you know, just focusing on the historic center. And so, so what we decided to work with different artists uh, and find the house. And then what we quickly started to realize that this is an interesting vehicle to, to investigate the urban history and also uh, be able to communicate that with the wider public. And that sort of drove Saudi Modern to really develop into a multidisciplinary initiative that would look at early modern development in all of the different major cities in Saudi. And in a sense, it's a way for us to sort of understand these early uh, confrontations with modern development, modern technologies, and really really situate our understanding of modern development in a way that does not become in conflict with tradition, but becomes a complementary to it. So what period exactly are we talking about when we say Saudi modern? Uh, so we really, I mean, I think that the critical time would be considered is the discovery of uh, oil, because this is this was really the point where modern development really starts to accelerate uh, much faster than it did in the, uh, in the 19th century and early first decade of the 20th century. And then Saudi modern would really extend on to until the present day, because I think this this development project is still ongoing. And so I was privileged enough to visit the exhibition that you organized in a modernist villa in Jeddah, which was one of the outputs of your project, a public exhibition. And you also produced a publication, which I thought was a great publication, actually. And one of the things that I thought really interesting about your project is that it wasn't just about modern architecture and the rise of modern architecture, but the way you did it is you also included contemporary Saudi artists and and featured their artistic responses. So I wondered, Abdurrahman, if you could tell us a bit about how you conceived the exhibition and why it includes the different components that it does. I think as, as Turkey was saying, it's um, it's really to, to reach out to a wider audience, but also the, one of the other reasons that we wanted to involve artists is to almost function almost as a collective, a different collective every time, with people inputting uh, different thoughts and ideas in terms of how we can approach modernity acts from a contemporary perspective and how do we, how can we push forward these ideas of, of early modernity in a contemporary artwork can, can reach a much wider audience and, and it has actually been proven to us that this is something that's uh, that the people quite enjoyed and it really created a dialogue between the viewer and the artist's works 
that also reflected back onto the architectural part of the exhibition. The exhibition, just to kind of enlighten our, our audience, is takes over a 1950s house that's owned by the Temer family, one of our, one of our supporters, at, at which we did a very light restoration. We superimposed walls and the exhibition took form in, in twofold, an architecture exposition or, or retrospective and the eight works done by the different artists who were Ahmed Matar, Filwa Nazir, Lina Gazaz, uh, Nasser Salim, Dima Sruji, who's actually from Palestine, and Aziz Jamal, and Zainab Alibi. Ahmed Matar was the only artist that was present in the architectural retrospective because when we approached him to produce a work, he was like, actually, I have an interview with Abdurrahman Mahlouf, the master planner, and one of our main kind of uh, points of focus because he, he, he was the one who worked on the master plan, the emerging master plan with the United Nations back in the 1930s. So Ahmed Matar actually had an interview with him in 2010. Ahmed is the only artist that had worked, that has his work in the architecture retrospective where the other artists interacted with their work within the narrative of the house, whether it be the experiential narrative or the curatorial narrative that we put together. Zainab Ali Rida has a work called Reflective Boundaries that is situated at the main staircase of the house. This work uh, is a two-story high work that really translates. Zainab is a master planner, so we pushed her to produce an artwork. Uh, and from her perspective, it looked at the past, present, and future of urban planning and translated that into the language of light, which was quite fascinating. Ala Trabzuni, I forgot to mention, looked at breeze blocks and really questioned the fabrication methods of breeze blocks, whereas Filwa Nazir looked at Bek Bajned, which was one of the 12 buildings we looked at. Um, we had 12 specimens of architecture in the architectural retrospective, uh, as well as a master plan in Ahmed Mathur's uh, video. So Filwa focused on Bajned House, which was a really interesting house that was built by, by this merchant, and she kind of abstracted the works into textiles or she, she usually works with textiles but she worked with soft construction materials this time to translate this and split it across two rooms. Aziz Jamal worked on his work was called Afranji um, and his work was took over the bathroom and looked at the water network coming in from Wadi Fatma. Nasr al-Salim has given us his work his previous work which is called Arabi Garbi which just redefined the work because it was all about the connections that were made and um, the partnerships that were made to build the city from the oil extraction all the way to paving the streets when coming in with the water networks. Do you want to tell them about also Lina and the rest of the artists? I think what was interesting also each artist is that you a contemporary response to this historic period and in a way for us this bridges this didactic interpretation of historical content and really connects the dots between what happened in the past and what we and our contemporary experience of of the city and the built environment so for example lena was looking at a yet stated glass as one of the status quo elements in traditional hijazi houses and then looking at how that evolved from glass that's used in interior spaces to glass it was started to look out to a, a backyard once people started to move out to the suburbs and then eventually how that kind of material started to become really commonplace and slowly started to get replaced by 
fountains and then later on swimming pools. So it's interesting to see how these different sort of technologies, these different materials also evolved with, with the growth of the city and also with the, the subtle changes that were happening socially. On another hand, uh, Dima Sruji looked at Sharia uh, Palestine and was looking more at the sort of regional political uh, alliances that were happening during that period and reflecting on how Jeddah has evolved and how Ramallah has also uh, uh, evolved in parallel after, you know, during this period and in the consecutive decades following. So I think in a way, most of these works complement the historic content or the, the initial essay and sort of really add an additional layer that puts things into context in terms of uh, our contemporary understanding of, of Jeddah. And I think to add to that, the house itself was, was the main artwork in a way that everyone gets to experience. It's something that we really wanted to shed light on, uh, whether it be on a conscious level or a subconscious level. You walk through this house that houses other other artists' works. Uh, In addition to all of this, we had Soto Sura, which is a great initiative that documents sounds of of women over decades as well. That's done by Tara Dreten. And we also had participation by, I think, 12 uh, children that had a site visit to the house. This was organized by Zainab Adarada and uh, someone from, uh, they're called Sivila, ex-cities. And they worked with 12 children to come into the house, experience the house and create um, an installation. So the installation was called The Curse of the Light. They came up with a horror story. They came to the house before it was restored. So it's, it's quite interesting to see how these different different perspectives kind of shift the gears towards one direction. That sounds fascinating. And uh, I love the fact that it discusses urbanism, architecture, and also artistic responses from different people of different ages. Well, I wonder, Turkey, through your exploration of, of Saudi modern, what did you discover about Jeddah? Can you tell us a bit about the period in which this modern architecture was built? how it links to the older buildings of Jeddah and in what ways it's different or the same? I mean, I think as we were doing this, doing this research, a lot of interesting kind of anecdotes and stories started to come up that make more sense of the city's current state. So, for example, one of the silver linings that we take for granted is that the, is that the city really developed at an extremely accelerated pace as a response to the, you know, the, the economic boom that happened following the discovery of oil. And, and you can see that the city really ex- took its first, you know, its first urban expansion boom, after, which happened in the 40s and 50s, was really taking place within a context of a very new government that was still bureaucratically being developed. So, and what, so what's interesting about Jeddah is that you can really see that these neighborhoods really picked up on a lot of the, uh, the urban traditions of the historic core. And a lot, of the, a lot of the architecture that was being produced was produced by the residents, sometimes actually built by the residents or directly contracted to specific contractors. So you don't see a lot of these uh, big name architects practicing in Jeddah during that time. But then you also have these uh, interesting individual examples of buildings that really speak about this uh, this transitional period. 
And so in terms of building construction, on the one hand, the cement factory was built in the early 50s. So that was supplying a lot of cement for construction. But at the same time, there was a form of there was a form of consciousness to preserve some of the traditional building uh, materials and techniques. So uh, some of the buildings that we were encountering were reinforced concrete frame with coral stone uh, infill. Sometimes the building would be, which is the case in uh, Aramco House or the Zainet House uh, in the old city, is that it's a, it's a 1930s building built out of uh, reinforced concrete, but the interior layout is really really follows the traditional Hijazi house. So, and then on the other hand, you have uh, detached villas in the suburbs, which are completely, which really show this departure from traditional ways of living, where you have guest receptions, you have individual rooms for, for each family members, on suite bathrooms, and really the, almost like, almost the model that is still being followed today. So it's really interesting to see these two different examples happening and how these started to take shape during that period. And I think that it's, you really see transitions in, you know, the mechanisms of land ownership in the relationship between the owner, the contractor, and the inhabitants of the house. And you, and you know, how government regulations also start to influence where people were moving and how they were occupying their land. So what kind of government regulations developed and in what ways did they influence people? So, for example, it was, this was a fascinating document that we came across, was, was the royal decree that was uh, governing Arab expansion on Jeddah following the inauguration of the Ain al-Azizia project, which is a project that brought in significant amounts of fresh water to the city. So, and that is basically a three-page document outlining areas that were being under the jurisdiction of the municipality, areas that were under the jurisdiction of the Ain al-Aziziyah, which is a, a non-profit endowment by King Abdul Aziz, and uh, areas that were governed by different, by the Minister of Interior, because there was still no Bureau of you know, Planning or Urban Planning or you know, Ministry of Municipal Affairs. So you can really see how that sort of starts to create a very rough outline that quickly starts to evolve into an urban code in the following decades. So I suppose, is it fair to say that the development of the city is also related to new sources of water and infrastructure that enables it to grow? Uh, that's, definitely, that's definitely the case, especially in terms of Jeddah, because you can really see you know, the jump that happens once you know, the, the first taps of that water supply start to uh, start working, and it's really from 1947 until 1959. You see the city expands tenfold, more than it has ever expanded over its 900-year history. And where does the population come from? Is it a physical expansion only, or is it also a population expansion? The uh, I think it's definitely both. Really, at that time, Jeddah was almost the de facto capital because it was. Uh, up until the uh, 60s or the 70s, I'm not sure. But Westerners were not even allowed in most other places around the kingdom. So it was Jeddah and Bahrain. So naturally, it attracted a lot of people from uh, different places. 
And you have a lot of uh, Arabs from different nationalities also coming in and working because there was uh, a huge you know, shortage of uh, local professionals. So you had engineers, architects, and different specialists, doctors, lawyers coming in from all over the Arab world, uh, and also laborers from, from around the Arab world and also Southeast Asia as well. So you can see a, a very diverse community starting to take shape. And in what ways did this modernist architecture reflect international trends? I mean, to what extent was it local and to what extent beyond the building materials was it in keeping abreast of what was going on in architecture in general around the world or around the Middle East? I think, I mean, definitely in terms of uh, architectural language, you see a lot of very modernist, simple modernist lines, you know, buildings that are from the outside or stylistically, let's say, they are completely modern. But once you start to see the interior layouts, I think, you know, moving from the traditional Hijazi house into, a, you know, an apartment building is really something... Um, I find that there's a lot of similarities, you know, the central staircase, the apartments for each floor. Um, and so I think that this was a very transitional period. And you can see that, you know, a lot of people moving moving from a traditional Hijazi house to a uh, modern apartment block, it seems almost uh, natural because, you know, the extent that family can occupy the apartment block and the sort of basic layouts are very similar in a way. So it's just a different form of an extended family house. Exactly. And I find that uh, quite interesting. But obviously, you know, once you look at the, you know, the emergence of the detached family house, um, that's when you can really see a stark contrast between the traditional and the modern. Thank you. Well, Abdurrahman, one of the things that comes to my mind as I think of this modern heritage and modernist heritage is its preservation. And I wonder to what extent your work is leading or could lead or will lead to more preservation and more awareness about the value of this architecture of this period, which I would say tends to be undervalued in the Middle East? Uh, definitely. I think one of the reactions that we had that prompted us to work on Saudi modern even is the fact that there is this direct split between the traditional and the modern, and the traditional is worthy of preservation, whereas uh, the modern isn't. For us, it's, um, and then even just the very notion of preservation, I mean, do you preserve a building so it stays still in silence forever as it was? Or do you kind of reshape this idea of preservation and kind of start introducing the idea of reuse, restoration and reuse? Uh, how do we start, instead of tearing down buildings, um, I think this, this is more of a, a global um, issue where there is always a question of do we preserve, do we tear down, or do we reuse the building? Is it cheaper to tear it down and rebuild it anew than it is to, to sustain that building. So I think it's, it's all of these things that really come together. For us with Saudi Modern, um, as I was mentioning before, it is the main, um, for, at least for me, it's the main artwork because it, it does exemplify that you can take on an old building that conceptually is worthy to be torn down and be turned into some business center, but you can actually flip it, play around with the narrative, and it can be used as an exhibition space. Later on, it can have pop-up restaurants, uh, it can have movie screenings, um, uh, symposiums and conferences. So it's, it's really, um, and that's, I think that's kind of something that we have also been 
quite involved in in our practice at BrickLab, where we do get invited by, by various private and governmental bodies to reuse buildings, uh, whether it's framed as reusing them or not, at this moment in time is relevant. What, what's most important that we can actually do simple restoration techniques and reuse the building. So basically our, our approach always, I think at BrickLab, um, is massively fascinated with superimposing uh, simple structures onto whatever is existing behind it. So we are, we accumulate um, a history rather than add or subtract and kind of willingly choose what's worthy of, of being something that's worth of preservation. And I think this really kind of follows the idea of this, it kind of loops back the idea of the split between tradition and modernity. And I think modernity is only the culmination of traditional ideals. Um, so it's, it's, there is, we're really trying to blur these boundaries between this very semantic approach towards uh, categorizing a style of a building. They, they all stem from the same place. Everything, as, even as Turkey was saying, everything, even things that are the ugly postmodern buildings can be reused and reshaped in interesting ways. And in practical terms, do you see initiatives by the government to list buildings or to preserve them in some legal way? Definitely, yes. Uh, there are, um, I mean, we, we definitely did come a long way in, in, in the past like five or six years. A lot of initiatives, a lot of thoughts about, I mean, there's still this slight notion of, of a split. Like there is a, the traditional body and there is the modern body. But I think the more, more people are popping up and this, this network is really diffusing this, this harsh split that's between what was and what is. Thank you. And Turkey, I wondered if you could tell us why the areas that you've been studying, I mean, why do people move away from these areas built in the mid-20th century? It's not a very long time ago that the buildings were built. Um, I think, I mean, when we look at the, um, that first master plan that was developed, that was completed and submitted in uh, the early 60s, there was a, an intentional, intentional uh, move, which is to take the airport from, uh, from close to the downtown area and move it northwards. And that sort of opened up a, a, a big area of land that would uh, later on, that would become planned over the years and really propel development to move uh, northwards and uh, accommodate a certain expected number population that was envisioned for uh, the city. And I think that combined with the booming real estate market that was starting to, to take shape at the time, uh, many people were, you know, many families were just simply moving northwards because they had bigger plots of land, uh, easier access to uh, the waterfront, and you know there was there was this sort of, um, and I think it's still, I think that it still resonates today that uh, you know the city would keep moving uh, northwards. And I think that a lot of people obviously. You know, the move from the tradition, from the historic uh, center to the early suburbs was really supported by this idea that you know, you're going to move to a house that provides modern technologies, namely, you know, a modern uh, kitchen, modern bathrooms, uh, electricity, uh, parking space. And the move from that 
from these early suburbs northwards was also, you know, continuing in that sort of uh, framework of uh, thought that, you know, when you move to, you can buy a bigger plot of land, have a newer house and be part of this new future. So I guess it's interesting is that it captures a continuous sense of aspiration to be more modern and more modern as modernity involves, right? Exactly. And I mean, it's still, and what, that, what is fascinating that it, it's still happening today. You see more new developments that are promising a new future uh, for the city and for its residents and new opportunities. And it just makes you question, you know, how long are we going to keep aspiring? Thanks. Well, I wonder, Abdurrahman, if you could tell me a bit about how you plan to expand your Saudi modern project and also if there are other initiatives in the kingdom of people interested in modernity and documenting and preserving it. And is this a growing trend? There's definitely, there's another uh, initiative that's called um, Saudi Architecture that documents modern architecture primarily at this point in Riyadh. It's owned by Sin Architects and led by Najud Sideri and Sara Al-Isa, both of whom we have been speaking to, to work with us as, as possible curators for the next edition of Saudi Modern that will take place in Riyadh and looks at modernity in Riyadh. We do aim to, do, to work on Saudi Modern in five prime cities as a start, namely Jeddah. We start with Jeddah, Riyadh, Mecca, Medina, and Al-Khubar. And hopefully once we finish all of these, we could also move on to, to Al-Taif and uh, to maybe Umloj, different places. It's really, for us, Saudi modern, our ultimate ambition is to have documented all of these cities and create a series of volumes of books that could be distributed in stores, but also in educational facilities, universities, schools uh, on a global scale to shed light on that. It's, it's really important to start understanding different facets of modernity in, in, within the vast realm of architecture, which takes place in different places and different cities. So we really want to highlight something that at this point in time isn't heavily researched, isn't heavily documented. And we really want to shed light and almost inspire other people to do more research. In another kind of, from another kind of perspective, these different cities also create an unseen network of architects where we could kind of always work together, collaborate, have a conversation, learn about each other's cities and try to understand how this collective vision can contribute back to, um, let's say, legal frameworks or planning frameworks. And that's kind of, it becomes even more interesting because architecture is quite linked to a lot of other things. You know, definitely. I think it's exciting. And I think that the more momentum you'll gain the more it will become a national agenda and you'll find perhaps policies or areas of cities that people say these are designated i mean i think what you're contributing to significantly is a raising of awareness and interest in something that most people took for granted so i wonder abdurrahman if you could tell me of one example of a building that you think captures the spirit of saudi modern i mean is there one that you, that you love there's many, many, many buildings. I mean, there's the Rajab and Silsila building that's close to the West. It's quite an interesting. I mean, it's, it falls outside of the period that we did our first exhibition. Jeddah will cover three different periods, so it's going to appear there. But I think also the social insurance building, I think, is quite fascinating. It's this massive high-rise blue concrete building 
whereas Raja Busilsila is kind of gray with green or turquoise aluminum uh, windows. And I think it's, it's, it's a cylindrical structure. It's quite interesting. The Hanu building, there's so many. One of the yeah. interesting ones as well. Definitely. Because I think it's one of those rare instances where you see sort of an embrace of modernity, not only in a technological sense, but also ideological, because I think it was really echoing progress that was happening in Germany and mm. journalism across the, uh, the region. So it was a printing, journalism and publishing house. So they had the equipment, they had the writers, and it was like a, the render was this sleek, very modern building, automobile driveway and inside was filled with all the new modern technologies to print and start producing uh, journalism essentially so it was a modernist building to fulfill a modern a modern function of spreading news and journalism and Precisely. Um, i mean it was interesting the choice of architect who was sort of this kind of pioneering modernist and was it a private building or was it a government built one it was a private actually it was it was a private building by the um, uh, uh, family. And it was the launch pad for uh, Jadid al-Tariyad and al, uh, I, think, I believe Al-Bilad as well. So, so would you say that private initiative and businessmen are often behind the rise of modern architecture or modernist architecture in Saudi Arabia? I mean, I think in Jeddah, definitely, I would say yes, because... I think a lot of the examples are privately in buildings. But I mean, you also have the, um, the, pilgrim, the pilgrim accommodation buildings. Yes, the large-scale projects were uh, mostly government-led. I think it's also because where the city is situated, like it's a port city. So it, it does have kind of modern needs, like the more kind of ships develop and can carry more pilgrims to come in, we need to provide larger buildings to accommodate. And I think it's, it's this conversation that really enriches the architecture we have here in Jeddah. And again, for each city, we'll probably have a different kind of backdrop that enriches the architecture here in Saudi, but also um, everywhere else. Well, Abdurrahman, if you could tell me something that surprised you most about your Saudi modern project, what would that thing be? It's success. (laughs) 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 I think it was really like, we, we didn't expect that people would find interest in something like that. But also one of the things that really surprised me is that we focused, we had focused so much on how we can interweave our scenography and curatorial narrative of the experience within the house, where you find people coming in and actually looking at the architecture itself. Um, yes, there, there is the, the, the written brief about everything, but they'd be looking at the door or looking at the floors uh, some people would be resonating about their own houses and maybe they should preserve them or maybe they should reuse them in certain ways. I think that was particularly really, really interesting. Another very surprising series of moments was of people who actually visited the house uh, in its prime time when it was owned by the family. Uh, so we had certain members who, were, who said they actually knew the owner. This was the piano room and this was uh, where we'd gather for dinner and some like this table was here, that there was a mirror here. It was really interesting to see how people were walking along this architectural retrospective and eight artworks that are superimposed to the house, yet they kind of resonated with their memories. And I think that really enriched 
their experience, but also enrich the feedback for us. I guess you created a forum for interaction and bringing people together, which yeah. for a research institution is a great thing. And Turkey, was there anything that you found particularly moving or a particular encounter that moved you throughout? I mean, I think one of the things uh, that I found very, um, very inspiring was working with the artists because, you know, as much as you do the uh, sort of the academic kind of research to collect data and find reliable resources, uh, the artists really opened up the, uh, the floor to engage with the, the owners of the house, some of the people who were managing some of the archives and really stretching the conversation beyond the uh, tangible content we managed to collect. So, and for me, that was something that was really exceeded uh, my expectations in terms of what the artists would, would really add and how they would look at this, take this historical content on. And I think the other thing is, as Rahman was uh, saying, it's uh, we, I think, getting into this project, we underestimated the role of the house. And we thought, you know, this is just a space. And I think, you know, it really added that, it added depth to the experience of the Go to this suburb, drive there where you wouldn't usually go, you enter the house and then the con, you know, you really see how, you know, the place really plays a huge role in how you can receive this content. Yeah. So I suppose that, when is the Riyadh one? Uh, so the Riyadh one, I, we're planning it for 2023. Mm-hmm. And uh, currently, um, we are, are we're looking for locations and, uh, uh, you know, really outlining the brief with the curators, Jude and Sarah. So we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah. Okay. Great. And how can anyone find out more about your work and about your Jeddah publication, for example? Are there ways that interested listeners can discover more I mean, about the Saudi Modern Project? We have, we have a website, um, saudi-modern.com, uh, which has a lot of information. And soon enough, and we also have our Instagram page, which is underscore Saudi Modern. So these are different ways. And there's also, of course, brick, brick-lab.com for normal projects. But in terms of the book itself, we're, we're working really hard on making it available, available to people outside of Jeddah. Uh, currently, we're, we're only selling it in Jeddah, but we are working on uh, having it being provided and we will surely update everyone that this is going to be available soon. Okay, thanks. That's great. It was a really fascinating conversation. Um, It's a very inspiring project and I think one of the best things about it is you got a great response and there's nothing more rewarding than to explore something new and find that actually you've struck a chord in so many people that you never expected it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for such... uh... Wonderful words, Seth. (laughs) Thank you, really. It's been a pleasure.